Today's podcast is brought to you by Eggshell Light Company. For over 45 years, Eggshell Light Company has been the go-to specialty shop handling the lighting needs for all that grace the shores of beautiful Hawaii. Combining the artistic methods of the theater with the speed and efficiency of the musical touring industry, they have pioneered event lighting throughout the Hawaiian Islands. They specialize in supply of top shelf equipment and designers for broadcast concerts, corporate, and special events. From the smallest weddings to televised concerts and the largest corporate clients, they know this is your most important event. It is their goal to make sure you feel that way. Aloha from Eggshell Light Company. Welcome everyone to another episode of LD at Large Podcast. My name is Chris Lose. I am the designer relations developer at Ayrton Lighting as well as columnist for PLSN Magazine. I hope you're all enjoying listening and reading. I'm very excited today because I get to reach out to a longtime friend, somebody who I've been working in the industry with from the very beginning of my career. Uh, one of my very first gigs out of the country was with this gentleman. And it uh, it was one of those times where I got the phone call where I felt like I had actually started to become a part of the industry and it made me very excited. Uh, some of my very first uh, productions outside of the shop were with this guy and uh, we go way back and I was very excited when uh, a member of my audience reached out and said, hey man, you've, uh, you've covered a lot of LDs, a lot of designers, a lot of programmers, a lot of touring people, a lot of TV. Why don't you reach out to some of the crew chiefs and kind of check in with them and see how they're doing and uh, what we can do to help them out. Just kind of bullshit and get share some more stories. So I'm very excited today to welcome Jason Trowbridge. He is a lighting crew chief at PRG. He's out of Los Angeles. Him and I go way back and uh, I'm very excited to just sit down and share an hour with him today. I hope you'll enjoy as well. What's up, buddy? Good to see you, Jason. Hi, Chris. Been a while. It has been. It's been quite a while. So uh, the phone call that I was in reference to was the very first time I got to leave the United States for a gig was the 2004 Athens Olympics. And uh, you were the one who got me that phone call. And I still remember being in the shop in Verilite, getting that phone call. And if I remember, you put it like this, like, hey, Chris, what's up, man? I'm like, hey, what's up, Jason? Long time no see. And you're like, hey, man, do you like, do you like drinking grappa? I'm like, uh, yeah, I kind of do. Do you like drinking grappa in Greece? Like that sounds wonderful. And then next thing I know, I was being offered a position to go help you out at the Athens Olympics. That was a, a big event. <laughs> Probably one of the biggest ones I've done to date. Yeah, that was a lot of that our, was uh, for, that was a lot of our, a lot of first on that one. A lot of people going to Europe for the first time. A lot of big state, you know, stadium gigs. And it was a pretty full scale, several month long adventure. That was good. If I remember, that was when uh, fiber optic was still like the new technology on the market at the time. Like we were running fiber everywhere. Uh, yeah, that was still before we even had a lot of fiber. We did a lot of fiber. When we ran out of fiber, we put a switch and run 300 feet of Cat5. There was a lot of uh, interesting Rackland connections on that gig. <laughs> if I remember at one point, a there was welding taking place and a... Uh, one of the dimmer beaches was rained on with sparks, which caught on fire and it burned up two or three of the switches. There just were no more in the world. Uh, yeah, just about. I think, I think a, a welder lit a box of plastic seats and a plastic 
flowed across uh, a vom into and lit some socos on fire and was burned into the container and basically burned out everything in the container and some fixtures up on uh, 100, 100 feet up on the roof. Yeah, that was a that was on Fourth of July. I remember it was a uh, we had we had a barbecue right. and, uh, we, we had a barbecue in Greece that day. That's right. I do remember that. Yeah, those are the sort of things that the audience will never, never get to hear about. Those are the okay. things that those are the 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 duck legs that are kicking underneath the duck that are just swimming so hard, and they'll, yeah, guys like you and me, we have to like take that our our one percent, two percent of the audience applause for that stuff. You're like, yeah, you'll never know that that happened. You'll never know that we almost burned the place down, but we that the place almost burned down through no fault of our own. <laughs> Disclaimer: We were not at fault there. <laughs> exactly. So for some of my audience who, who aren't in the uh, as well-established, kind of give me a, a, a quick rundown of what the crew chief does. Like, when do you get brought into the project? Well, I, I sort of do a few different types of gigs. Mainly I do TV shows, award show style events. I also do a lot of, you know, sometimes theater, some outdoor fashion shows, sometimes concerts, touring. Uh, so they all kind of have their own separate approaches. Usually I don't get involved until there's a plot. Right. No reason, until there's a lighting plot, there's no reason for me to really look at anything. Um, I get an idea of scale, maybe the building, some uh, timelines, but until I know how much and what kind of equipment, there's really not a whole lot of point in me getting terribly involved. All right. So once a plot has been generated by the designers, they've put, they've chosen the truss structure, They've done the walkthroughs. They've put some fixtures on the plot. That's at the point where the, the usually the, the the fixtures have already been specced. That's when it makes it to you, and they're like, "Beyond here, we have no idea how to make this happen." Exactly. Instead, so depending on what kind of scenario I'm in, depends on who I need to talk to to take my next steps. Um, if there's a TV show, I need to talk to the gaffer to see what the power requirements are, see, you know, what the rack lamp positions are, you know, what their ideas, how they want the show to be laid out. With the concert touring event, I pretty much just go for it. You know, you know, the power is going to be stage right. You know, the front truss is 150 feet away. And that's pretty much kind of standard things. And if you go to a studio, it's kind of free for all. You could be, you could have one rack lamp in a grid. You could have three rack lamps in the corners. You could, yeah, it really depends on that building. You sort of have to be flexible around that scenario. So depending on what kind of event and where it is, you sort of have to approach it specifically for that type of environment. So I would imagine sometimes a plot comes to you and you have to go back and you're like, hey, we just can't do this. Is that something you, do you ever have to do that? Is that something that you're even at, at liberty to say? Um, I don't really get to say that. <laughs> basically my job no, is to that's do not it. an option yeah i can say it's gonna be really difficult you know i may have to get okay. with a few other departments to figure out you know the best way to make that happen um but you know if reality says it can't happen it, it, you know it can't happen but my job is to make sure that it can happen <laughs> somehow or another or at least as close as you know the designer wants it to be I'd imagine the, the, the best option you have is to come back and like, hey, we can do this. It might be a little bit more expensive than you expected, but 
Uh, we, we can make this happen. It's, it's going to require 14 flown dimmer racks up in the sky that uh, it's going to end 70 more people. Exactly. It all depends on the situation. You know, you know, some things are, it also depends on what right. you're trying to do. Some things are subjective. Some things are very objective. You know, if you have to have a light there, if a person has to stand in one spot and you have to put a light there, the light has to go there. If it just kind of looks good, you're going to be a little more flexible. It really depends on the situation. I mean, it's a designer understands the realities of things. They're not going to make you do something that's, you know, going to cost them time and money if they can avoid it either. If there's a simple solution that'll take five minutes, five feet away. Right on. Uh, these days, when the plot reaches you, does it, do they usually have fixture numbers and addresses on them? Or is that does that usually fall into your realm? Um, I usually do all the addresses and power and networking. Um Usually the, the board ops get hold of the plot, hopefully before I do, at the same time I do. And they usually sprinkle their numbers on it. And uh, I'll take it from there. And if it's if we're sort of up against the wall, it'll sort of give me a general flow. Say I'm starting here, I'm going to go this direction. And we sort of work concurrently and eventually get all the information together at some point. Yeah, so. that's one of the ones where I find the, the, uh, the communication breaks down sometimes. Sometimes the crew chief gets the plot first and sometimes the programmer gets the plot first. And sometimes there's a little bit of a back and forth there. I mean, mm -hmm. that's something you have to be pretty flexible on. And sometimes I'm pretty spoiled too, is that when I get the plot, the, uh, the shop gets the plot. So there's a whole, you know, a couple of guys in the shop who are tearing the plot and doing a first pass on the equipment list. So, you know, sometimes I'm generating equipment lists from nothing, but a lot of times I'm, you know, being given one that, that needs to be tweaked, added, you know, let's say, okay, you know, the shop guys know there's this many lights, you need this much cable, this many racks and boxes. But depending on, you know, conversations I've had with the production and, you know, variations in the environment, I may have to, you know, change some things, add some things. I may want to lay some things out differently. But, you know, I, I'm kind of spoiled. I get, like, you know, 90% of it, you know, kind of handed to me. And I just go through and do a few tweaks here and there. Right on. After 20 plus years in the industry, I would imagine there's kind of a formula in your head that exists, but it also requires 20 years of experience to know when the formula is not going to apply. Exactly. You know, we, everyone has their sort of like, you know, numbering schemes. So they like to number things and lay things out and you have to know when to just give that up and when it doesn't make sense. You know, sometimes if you, <laughs> it, 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 it's, it's not worth sticking to your guns. If it's just going to be more confusing to just, you know, just go one, two, three. Yeah. <laughs> so, so in the touring world, I rarely see anything TBD on a plot and the, the, the times that you and I have worked together, I've seen sometimes more fixtures in TBD than on the plot. Absolutely. That's gotta be something you have to just be wildly prepared for. Uh, yep. And in a, in a concert during a world, you're doing the same thing every night. You're not mixing it up. The whole point is to get it in, get it fast and be repetitive with a TV show or an award show. You know, if someone moves five feet, you've got to move everything five feet or, or add a light. If, it, if they decide they want to move a camera to a different angle and there's a big black hole behind them, something you've got to throw a bunch of lights to fill that black hole. So, yeah, it's very uh, reactionary. A lot of times um, we'll come in and hang a whole, a whole show and the producers will say, let's move, you know, the, the, the talent, you know, five feet over and you have to move the follow spots. You know, sometimes it's just unforeseen. Um, so yeah, I mean, oftentimes the joke is that the light plot is just sort of a rough idea of what kind of lights are in the building. <laughs> <laughs> and you got to just got to bring enough extra cables and hopefully a few extra racks to 
you know, be flexible and accommodate anything that pops up. Or you got to pick up the phone <laughs> and call the shop and ask for so some more stuff, which is... Anybody who doesn't already know what Jatrovich is talking about, like on tour, you want to bring as few things as possible. So if you have 20 fixtures, you want one, maybe two spares because you don't have the truck space. In television, especially for things like the Grammys and the Emmys and the Academy Awards, it's not uncommon to see 500 TBD fixtures on a plot where people just like... Just give maybe me a couple hundred. <laughs> yeah, maybe I'm exaggerating a bit, but uh, well, it, it's not uncommon to see, especially when it comes to like VL5s. Sometimes they're just like, well, we have 200 VL5s in the shop. They're going to come, they're going to be on site, and you make sure you have enough cable for them. And, and that's, and, and TBDs are often a separate situation from what we call a band ad. If you have like the Grammys, you know, they'll say, okay, here's your, you know, 1500 lights and a couple of thousand LEDs you know, pixels here and there. And then you have, you know, 50 TBD lights, which you use for, for occasional, if you need to add a fill light or fill in some scenery or somewhere you have your, your TBDs, but then every act will have a budget for their own performance. So you'll be in the middle of loading in the show on, you know, day three or four and say, oh, by the way, uh, Beyonce is bringing, you know, a wall of a hundred, you know, you know, 200 channel pixel products. And you're like, oh, Okay, let me design a whole other system on top of that that may integrate into your current system or maybe a separate standalone desk. You often never know. I mean, you're literally loading in a show and you have to stop and go to your workbox and figure out a whole other show or 10 other little three-minute shows that fit into your bigger three-hour show. So there's TBDs, there's band ads, you know, there's, we're very reactionary you know, <laughs> to uh, everything else that happens around us. So on top of a, an already mega television rig, if the show has 15 artists, you're going to have 15 systems on top of your system. Uh, and obviously some... all the different programmers want their own consoles. You're going to have to be able to integrate different uh, protocols, uh, uh, different times, pathways. Yeah, it, it really depends on the artist and the level of the show. You know, a lot of times we'll have, you know, a few, you know, four lights that we, that we reconfigure for every band. So I mean, maybe not every artist will have a huge wall of, you know, additional things, but every other one, you know, maybe, you know, mm -hmm. most of them, but not all of them. A lot of times we try and integrate that into uh, our programmers. Um, sometimes we'll have a separate programmer who's really just does the addition. So we'll have one person who focuses on the set and the scenery, one person who focuses on the key lights, making the people look good. And a third person who just deals with all the band ad stuff. That's a whole, you know, other programming, you know, workload that gets added on once you've already shown up. And sometimes the artist brings their touring programmer. You know, if, you know, no one, no one knows the songs better than the guy who programs it every day. Right. I mean, you know, the, the programmers that do the award shows are amazing. They, they learn 15, 20 songs you know, and have to hit those buttons. Even if they time code them, they still have to learn the songs. Mm -hmm. but but nobody knows it as good as a guy who's been doing it for the last four years banging the buttons and if, and if they can integrate the system and they want to come do it we're happy to accommodate them man that is a lot of accommodating uh, it's all accommodating <laughs> <laughs> it's got to be tough because as a crew chief you have to be on the floor kind of overseeing 
but then you also have to be back at your work box devising where the new power is going to come from, where the new universes are going to come from, how you're going to integrate, which is a lot of paperwork. How do you balance There's the time back and forth between the two? Uh, you have uh, good technicians to help. You know, it all, it all comes down to your crew. You know, if, if, if you can't walk away from your crew for an hour to go, you know, do some more paperwork, you know, you're not going to get it done. It's all about it's delegation. You know, you need to have a bunch of rock stars with you. You need to have someone who can run the stage, someone who can manage the network, someone who can be fixing the lights and the follow spots while you're off doing something, you know, getting ready for the next wave. Yeah, you really need to, basically you need talent equivalent to yourself who can take care of things while you're stepping away. Yeah, you know, obviously, there, there is no other Jason Trowbridge, but uh, there's lots of uh, uh, Jason Trowbridge adjacent technicians <laughs> out there. <laughs> we, we try and be as uh, you know interchangeable as possible, but when it gets down to you know just crunching a bunch of numbers and digging your head in the laptop and producing tons of paperwork, you know some people are better at people. You know that you need to have a lot of different people on your crew. You need to have you know. A, a network guy, you need to have a fix it person, you need to have someone who can interact with, you know, the talent the people, and be on stage. You know, you need to have a lot of different, you know, specialties, you know. Yeah. Uh, so what are some of the tools that you're using these days that make that quicker so that you don't have to be away from the floor as often as possible? Well, we, a lot of the, we were with a lot of the same people. So we have a, a pretty good workflow that we're, you know, we pretty much established. People kind of know what's coming. If, if I'm going to, you know, add a piece of LED tape in the end of the universe, they know it's going to be address 401. The dip switches are 1589. You know, <laughs> we, just, we sort of just have things that we repetitively do all the time. It's like, oh, that, you know, if you're going to add something, you know, the, the way we number the racks is usually pretty consistent. So they say, hey, just go to the next one. They, you know, they can label the racks without me having to tell them every cable in the racks. I say that rack is 111. They know they're, how to label that rack is 111, 12, 13, 14, 15. So there's a lot of, you know, you know, practice, you know, experience. Consistency. Consistency. Yeah. You know, you, you leave, you leave rooms for, you know, you know, you know, the wave is coming. So you have to just leave some space for it and let everybody know that when the wave comes, that's, that's where you plug the things in. So. Pre pandemic, was it actually getting to a point where you would know like, well, these guys did that show last year. I'm 95% positive. I'm going to get them the next year and the next year and so on. Yeah. It mixes up a little bit, you know, but, but not a lot. It's, it, it's, it's pretty consistent. You know, that, that helps a lot too. Having a lot of teams that you've worked with and they're familiar with how you each, you know, with your workflows, you know, some, some people want, you know, just a list here, here give me the patch and the next cell list. Some people want, you know, a full size plot. Some people want just a little mini plot they can look at. Um, yeah, it's just a matter of getting people the information in, you know, the form that they're used to dealing with it in. And that's something that I do a lot is, you know, try and give people, you know, exactly what they want without a lot of transposition. You know, some people want to look at a picture. Some people want to look at a list. It, some people want both. Some people don't want anything. Some people want to tell you what you're going to do. So it's really just, you know, interacting with everyone individually and getting the information going. So that's something that is not unique to Trowbridge's style, but it is, uh, he definitely excels at where he does these little mini plots where 
if he knows that a, a, a truss is going to be off into a, a far off land, he'll do another separate mini plot just for that truss. And he'll be able to hand that off to you. And you'll be like, okay, go do that one. All the information you need is on this mini plot. So that's something that's always been something I found unique about the way you do it is that it, it's very well laid out. Like you've thought about it so in depth that you know exactly what people are going to need long before they yeah. need it. Yeah. And it's not just my workflow. It's, it's a lot of our workflows. If we sort of, it's easier to have one small picture you can put in your back pocket than have to carry, you know, you can't give a full size plot to, you know, everyone on the crew, but you can give a little, you know, you know, five, 10 page, you know, you know, legal size thing with, with, with cartoons and triangles and shapes and squares and boxes and numbers or, you know, I do them in a vector works mm -hmm. now, sort of, sort of a completely not to scale with big, huge, you know, it's about legibility, you know, it's not to mm -hmm. scale. So, you know, what, what number is that light? You know, if I have a light, if I have a show with, you know, 1500 lights, that's 3000 questions, you know, where does that light plug in? What's its address? What's its universe? You know, if I can just give someone a piece of paper and they can just go do it and then have to ask me any questions, that's how it's going to be the most efficient. It's almost like arts and crafts hour. The way some of Jason Trowbridge's mini plots come out, they are, they're almost cartoon in the fact that they are so well laid out and you're just like, Oh, well that's clearly how this trust is going to work. It's not vector work style where you just like, it's, it's pixel accurate, but it's, it's so legible and readable that it makes it, it makes your day much easier. So I was laughing. I've had a lot of, I went to school. I've got a, a lot of theater and drafting experience. Probably the, the one of the most useful classes I had was a six week high school class in graphic arts. Taught you how to copy, paste, make things look visually nice and balanced. Probably got more use out of that than any <laughs> other drafting and theater and all that sort of stuff. Just like, oh, here's how to make a really simple, good looking, balanced schematic that you can copy paste out of vector works and PDFs and just, you know, compile all the information to get into one nice looking document. Mm. It just goes to show that uh, a little bit of forethought can save hours on show site. I've seen so many times where somebody thought they, they were going to be clever and they were going to reinvent the wheel and they tried new ways on show site clearly not having thought it through and it just cost the production time and money to just go back to like, no, we're going to go back to the way that we should have done it in the first way, the first place. One of my favorite digs on the radio when someone calls me on the radio and say with a question, Hey, how do, how should we do so-and-so and so-and-so? I'll say, well, if you turn to page seven in your mini plot, nice and calm, they'll look and say, Oh, if you look in the upper left-hand corner, there's a note there that says which way the connector goes. And they'll go, Sorry, click radio off. I love saying that. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think that's a good way to avoid yelling on show site? Yeah, I mean, sometimes you, I mean, there, there's, there's yelling for volume's sake and there's yelling for clarity's sake and there's yelling for emotional sake. If we can remove a lot of the emotional yelling yeah. out of it, the rest of the yelling is, is okay. You shouldn't get to the point where everyone's stress level is a point where you're yelling at each other. I mean, it happens. Right. Of course it happens. Usually it's interdepartmental, not, you know, inside your department, <laughs> <Yo>. <laughs> but you know, it happens. There are different ways to deescalate. And, you know, if someone's yelling, someone's usually looking to be yelling. That's usually not the, <laughs> they're, they're a yeller. I'm not a yeller. 
I'm an explainer. I feel like you and I are just old enough to remember when it was, when yelling was more of the default. Like yelling was the way that you transferred information to people on the show site. I don't know if it was, maybe it was, things were louder. Maybe things, people were just grumpier, but I feel like you and I have witnessed a, an evolution away from yelling. Uh, yeah. I think we've all gotten a little more professional in our old age. And it, it depends yeah. on the environment. If, if you're in, if you're somewhere where you've got 40 people who aren't paying any attention and you're in a hurry and your truck's supposed to leave, you know, you know, in 20 minutes, you're going to yell. <laughs> you know, it, yeah. it, it's just, if it's a way of um, relaying the pace you need to be setting, you know, of, of the work you're trying to get done, that's one thing. If you're, you know, yelling to, you know, be angry about something, you're probably going to achieve the opposite. <laughs> it's funny. I, I actually, it reminds me of a story from a Vegas show. I want, I can't remember if it was the VMAs or something like that, but I was out putting uh, floor pods on VL5s, the freaking tripods. And just because I know that you're not a yeller, I remember you coming over radio and you just not alarmed, just slightly elevated, like fire, fire, stage left. And, and I, you could just see five of us just book it. Like that's not something that Trowbridge would say without, you know, without, um, you know, without. Yeah. I, I think a, a VL 3000 took a, a Roman candle into the nose, <laughs> like right in the nose and set the foam on fire. So yeah, I think that I remember, yeah, that was probably a, a billboard awards or something. That was probably, uh, I remember that. I think I remember yelling a couple times on that show from a few knots being tied, not being tied correctly. That'll, yeah. that'll, that'll, that'll make me yell. Whether I'm, you know, up on the truss, I'll, I'll climb down from the truss to yell at someone for a bad knot. If I'm going to yell, it's because someone's being dangerous. I mean, if I someone's being dangerous, it's because they're usually being stupid and they know better. So that, yeah, that'll bring out the yelling. <laughs> Even still, I don't know if I've ever seen you overly emotionally yelling. It seems like a, a well-calculated yell. Oh, there, is, there, there are well-documented moments across time and space. <laughs> I, hopefully that, that means, I hope the exceptions prove the rule there. No, yeah, it, it, it's rare. But, you know, I, when it happens, it's glorious. <laughs> right on so you got into the industry through touring if i remember that's where you how did you get into the uh, uh sort of accidentally somehow in seventh grade i was a science teacher's assistant or something and he happened to be the drama teacher so by default i was a guy who stayed for class and cut christmas trees out of plywood for the for the christmas play by default i was a flyman so by default, I was a guy trying to breakers on the footlights in the little bit of theater that we had. So that made me the stage guy. <laughs> cool. Christmas tree and breaker pushing guy. So, yeah. Christmas tree flyman. And then I, I think I flew Peter Pan on a hemp line set in a leather and strap harness in like eighth grade. So that was super dangerous. You know, I kind of blew it off. You know, went back to some theater in high school, blew that off did some theater in junior college and then kind of ended up with a degree in, <laughs> in theater somehow. Reluctantly. Uh, so yeah. 
And yeah, I just, I kind of just, you know, became the master carpenter on a show and stayed there. So yeah, I found a, you know, you know, several times fell into theater despite trying to be an engineer of several different uh, varieties. The math wasn't in me. So I became a uh, theater guy. And now I do math all the time. <laughs> you do lots of math for somebody who mostly, doesn't want to. M- mostly math. It's mostly um, math. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Mostly drawing and, and math. Um, I don't know if yeah, you know, so, that's what engineers mostly do is drawing yeah. and math. Yeah. So, yeah. So I, I still kind of do some of that, I suppose. So, yeah, I sort of became, became uh, from the theater world. And a couple of the guys that went to my college, Kyle uh, Mona, uh started working for Verilite for one way or another. So uh when they needed help, they called me to go set up Vito Fives on the roof of a restaurant for a party. After doing that for a couple of years in a row, uh they just hired me. So oh. I went from being a being a house theater guy to being a TV guy. Here I am, 22 years later. This is even back when Verilites were being worked on in in private tents uh yeah probably right right about the time i, I started at Verilite in the fall of 1998 right when the the virtuoso and the vl7 came out my, my very first day at Verilite was here's a vl7 in a toolbox take it apart and put it back together uh, oh that's not an easy fixture to take apart. no that and that was when it was you know still you know no interconnect boards cable drives if you wanted to swap the, the color you had to take the strobe out that made no yeah. sense yeah, it was a. Yeah. We moved on from that technology. So that was just at the very end of the the medical tent secrecy it, days. At least ex- we exactly. all decided that DMX was the way to go. Then it wasn't all yeah. proprietary cables anymore. Yeah, uh, we we just got that's still the virtuoso with the uh, the, the talkback features for the Sears 300. So it was still that's when it went from easy to really ridiculous, uh, and then they said, "Oh, let's just do not do that anymore and do DMX." So yeah, there was there was a, a painful time in the very light data era there that was um silly. But we moved on. Oh man. We don't talk so about So if anybody uh, uh, wasn't NIST. around for that one, somebody had the idea that it would be really cool for the programmer to talk to the lights and for the lights to be able to talk back to the programmer and say like, "Hey, I have a color error. Or I have a my lamp is doused or something." So the the, the artisan system used to do that. The original right. you know, artist used to tell you all that. When we flipped the Virtuoso, they decided that it would be cool if it would tell you all the pan and tilt and intensity values. So the uh, the onboard console visualizer actually gave you live feedback from the Series 300 fixtures because it would know. The, so if a, if a light got back from a piece of scenery, it would move on the visualizer. Like It was actual real feedback from a, a Verilite Series 300 yeah. fixture. <laughs> it required a lot of cable. And we decided it wasn't really worth all that cable. So we moved on to the Series 400, which is a much better DMX ArtNet ACM based system. So does RDM. There's still some feedback, but not everything that you don't really need. Yeah. Yeah. I remember being behind a virtuoso and you would see the actual visual of the repeater box and then the fixtures. And man, you just, you would spend the whole day trying to get a green screen. That was the coolest thing actually of that console. Was it actually, if you had a, console and their their network interface or NIF rack box, it would actually show you, you know, a graphical interface of the fibers connected, what repeaters were plugged into that port, what kind of lights are in the repeater. 
So if you literally plugged in the wrong lights and the wrong repeaters, you go to the console screen and it would tell you you had a bunch of VL5s and a VL7 repeater. It was yeah. pretty cool. It was a good tool for teching, and we've uh, we just don't do that anymore. Yeah, because if, <laughs> if I remember, that was just when we just were trying to decide if all the information should exist in the lights, in the repeater, or the console. And so sometimes they wouldn't take the information if they weren't at a hundred percent capacity at the hundred uh, percent functioning. Exactly. Back in the artisan days, all the cues were stored in the fixtures or the repeaters. Uh, so if that light went offline, you had to literally get that memory card to work <laughs> so they could save the cues before you swap the light. Uh, that was dumb. That's the way you had to do it. <laughs> mem memory didn't exist then. You had to, you know, memory was small, so you had to put it in the lights. You know, you couldn't communicate to that many lights fast enough, so you had to distribute the memory. But uh, right around the time I came in, that stopped happening. They started yeah. storing it in, in, in the console and the fixture at the same time, so you didn't have to, you know, take everything apart to the screws <laughs> yeah. to get a light back in shape. So that that that's pretty funny. Like. Yeah, there's a lot of the old the, the Verilite technicians who came from that really finicky uh, system have a lot of troubleshooting experiences. A lot of people don't have anymore. Literally, if you had a VL4 and the Teflon screw that separated the grounding screw from the power supply wasn't there, the screw was short and it would take out the entire system. So literally, if yeah. you, you, you had to know... you had you know, the technicians all had to know to look for if, you know, the system, we call it a screamer because the broadcast, the reply LED on the, on the communication network would, would light up solid, being there's a short. You have to run to every rack land and every rack and shut off the data breakers or unplug the trunk runs or just to figure out what two wires in a system of 600 lights was shutting down the rig. That was uh, stressful. Like, what, like, PTSD from troubleshooting, like <laughs> run, run, go. Yeah. I think we're evolving away from that. I don't think that a lot of technicians these days have the same troubleshootings know-how that we do because nowadays I mean, you can't even work on lights on site, especially some of the led stuff, uh, especially uh, you know, the, the most modern stuff you open them up and they're like, they're yeah, more modular, but there's there's four moving parts, you know. Now there's there, there's a pan and tilt and a zoom. Yeah, <laughs> everything else is, you know, what used to be all, you know, you know, the lights used to have tachometers. You know, the lights used to have tachometers for God's sakes. <laughs> and now there's, you know, now there's you know nothing. A lot of stuff that has to get changed now is all circuit level stuff, and there's nothing you can be doing on site. Whereas with like a VL7, I mean, there were physical belts and teeth and pulleys and yeah you, you used to fix lights with an o-scope a soldering iron and you know, a pair of needle nose pliers you know you need a you know literally a, a microscope soldering station you know yeah you know, because there was no sending it back to the shop especially if you're in greece and the nearest shop is in new york there's no sending stuff back yeah that, that, that's one thing you know when you're when you're in town and you can call the shop and have them bring you a light in two hours you know, that's one thing. But if you're on tour or out of the country, you know, you need, you need to be able to fix what you've got or have the right parts or, you know, things have moved away from being as modular as it used to be. 
you used to be able to, you know, climb, you used to be able to literally climb a truss and fix a light in the truss. You know, literally take take a dimmer assembly and a color assembly out of a light and swap it in the truss. You know, now you, there's no way you couldn't. You were going to swap a lamp. You can just screwdriver and take the trying to swap a lamp and a sharpie or a mythos. You have to take the whole thing apart. <laughs> you feel to climb up there and you know, do it with a screwdriver. No tools required sometimes. Not things have changed. There is no one tool you could take up. Yeah, exactly. Better for us. You know, things have gotten easier but more difficult depending on your perspective. For a long time, one of the best solutions that anybody could come up with to keep the arm covers on a VL6 was just electrical tape it. That's how we still do it. Yeah. <laughs> Hasn't changed. Uh, we tried many other things. You know, a lot of them were just too time consuming or too inefficient. So we just, just electrical tape. That worked. Yeah. Uh, one of the things that I remember being a seemingly wonderful idea that turned out to be a terrible idea was the VL5 arc liquid lenses. Oh yeah, I have one of those in my garage. Just just a lens, not, not a VL5, just just a lens. Uh, a friend found it and uh, sent it to me, and I decided it, it's the technician's version of a glitter bomb because I, I opened it and instantly <laughs> everything around me and myself was covered in nasty, goopy silicone oil. <laughs> so yeah, so uh, back. So a VL5, for people who don't know, a VL5, a traditional classic incandescent VL5, has uh, rotating diffuser blades in the front. You can diffuse, they can change the beam spread of the light. When they uh, developed the VL5 arc, they put an a arc source in the back and had to replace the dimmer, the diffuser blades with dimmer blades, with a mechanical dimmer, since you can't dim the arc source. So they also wanted to be, able to be able to change the beam spread on the fixture. So in replace of the uh, glass style PAR lamp uh, shape in the front of the lamp, they put a, a plastic uh, envelope sort of uh, with a little membrane on the back of this honeycomb. And they put a little pump in the side of the light. And that pump would pump a uh, high temperature silicone goop if you will, back and forth into this lens. So the little honeycombs would sort of, you know, expand or contract and it would very slowly <laughs> over a course of a couple of seconds, very slightly change <laughs> the, the uh, size of the, uh, of the beam. It was also took a lot of intensity out of the light. So it wasn't um, efficient. It wasn't fast. It wasn't durable. Uh, no, and often it was leaked. not durable. Yes, it was um, one of those things that we're happy to have gone away. Now we just swap the lenses in the front and you're stuck with what you get. Oh no, someone's going to have to plan your photometrics ahead of time. Do the work. <laughs> one of the weirdest thing about this liquid that was in the five arc lens is it was both sticky and extremely slippery at the same time. <laughs> True. True. If it was on your hands, it was sticky. If it was on your feet, it was slippery. Yeah, it's one of those um, miracle substances. <laughs> <laughs> so when it came out, it felt really cool because it felt like the lights were more organic. Like they actually had like a heartbeat. But uh, yeah. then we realized that uh, as soon as that liquid gets set free in any way, because even it has to go through the, the hinge. Yes, that's what often was a failure point was the little hose would get crimped, you know, to close the light, if you had to tuck the hose in, you, you, you couldn't tell if it was crimped or not. There was no way to know because it's you know, encased in the light. And 
more often than not. Yeah. Kink. <laughs> Being back in Vegas, I used to get a many a, a late night phone call, like go down and replace all these five arcs with uh, buxom lenses because they just can't have those things leaking on the artist. Even if those leak one more time, we're losing the whole project. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So you got to take out the pump and the, put the counterweight in. Oh, it's such a mess. Ah, we've come so far from those. Yep. The, you know, I'm an old Verilite guy. You know, I like VL5s. I still do shows with literally hundreds of VL5s on them. The more I do VL5s, the more I like impressions. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see, a VL5 that costs me 10 amps or an impression that's one amp. No, I uh, I actually wrote an article on that not too long ago. I remember many times where you and I would do uh, we'd do a huge event with one remote stage and just to get four wash fixtures out there would require the Saco, the DMX, the, the repeater box, the, you know, the dimmer, the dimmer, the yeah, everything. The now you can do it with one circuit and one DMX cable from yep. wherever the power may be. And, and you're done. Yep. Very light. Uh, having moved on, they did, you know, the VL 500, you know, they, they did their best to move on from that. But, you know, honestly, some, in some ways that VL five and the VL six are still great little lights. You know, they're, they have a, a niche and we still use a lot of them. You know, something just don't, don't, especially the VL five, you know, the VL six, you know, it's sort of a, been replaced by a lot of the other hardest fixtures, but the VL five just has a look to it right. that, uh, yeah, hard to beat. Hard to beat. Uh, one of the other things and that a good price. went through, that uh, very few people go through anymore is conversion kits. We did, we, that just doesn't exist in the industry anymore. Where a six became a six B became a six C became a six C plus. Yeah. That was, that was one of the things with, with, uh, with Verilite, you know, they wanted to continue to advance their fixtures, but you know, having proprietary fixtures, you can't really, you know, for the money, it was easier to upgrade their existing inventory than it was to you know throw away the old stuff and buy all new stuff right you know, like it's a, a cost thing uh a lot of it was you know i'm sure it had a lot to do with the banks and the money they say you can't buy new fixtures so i say <laughs> oh well we'll just rebuild our existing ones into the new fixtures so their inventory doesn't change they just upgrade so yeah a lot of that was based on you know very like back then was a relatively small company yeah you know there, there wasn't like a huge manufacturing or you know corporate offices there's six or eight offices throughout the world and that's that's what you did yeah i remember it being really tough because you'd be in the large markets like los angeles and you would get all the newest stuff and then you'd go to orlando or something and you'd get oh you don't have the c's yet you still have the sixes where i got to change the lenses every time like yeah we haven't got the conversion kits yet yep that's all availability and keeping up with what the technology and yeah we're still doing that you know every every other show i've got to figure out some new kind of light <laughs> this is also pre-internet when part of jason's uh roll uh, road case would be full of manuals you would have to have the manual or at least a short like an yeah. excel sheet of everything that you would ever need on that show site yeah, the organization was a lot different back then. I remember being with Cliff one time, and he was 
so proud that he had a, a sheet and I think it was 10 pages thick of just the amperage that every single fixture needed, the different colors, how many gobos each one had. And it's all the stuff that we can just Google now. Yep. Just, you literally just ask Siri, how, how much is a, you know, as an Ayrton, uh, Mr. Elk draw, huh? Huh? How, much? <laughs> <laughs> how many amps does that draw? Wait, that only, only, only four. Really? Yeah. What's that? What? Only four? Okay. <laughs> Siri knows that stuff now. <laughs> yeah. Siri's very clever. So when you were saying that you kind of fell into this industry, did you have any idea that theater was going to take you to places like Athens and Shanghai and, and all, and all over the world? No, honestly, no. I, I kind of didn't really have a lot of big aspirations beyond the theater world at that point. I did theater. I was doing a lot of, a lot of concerts and sort of, you know, theater, you know, concerts in theaters, not just theater work per se. You know, so right. I was, you know, call, calling music shows and, you know, calling follow spots and things. So I had some experience with that. But uh, the whole TV uh, uh, area was kind of foreign to me. I worked in a few venues where we filmed a couple of TV shows. So I, you know, had, you know, crossed paths with, with those guys. Um, and being a labor guy and a few things around LA, I worked on a couple of shows. But it really wasn't until, uh, you know, I got kind of overhired to be, work with those guys directly that I really sort of... Uh, fell into it just mechanical side of it was a lot you know you know theater's nice you know you know line sets and things so you know you know but when you get into the networking and the you know the in- intricacy of the lights and things that's yeah, a lot more fun a lot more interesting a lot more uh, variables so it really wasn't the the artistry of the industry that got you and it was the more the nuts and bolts yeah exactly it's just you know it's know. Uh, and a lot of kind of the lifestyle side you know, we can pretty much manage our own schedules to some some extent. Yeah. Um, a lot of thing. One of the things I really like about it is a lot, a lot of people outside industry don't ever get is closure. You know, we we get to do small compartmentalized little projects. You know, we do a show, we work on it, we see it, you know, come to fruition. And when it's over, good or bad, we close the door on the trucks and that goes away. You know, good or bad memories, positive, negative, whatever. That one's done and you move on to the next one. You know, a lot of people don't get that in their careers. You know, it's sort of, you know, sort of linear whereas ours were kind of more, kind of more boxed up. So it's, I get a lot of satisfaction out of that. <laughs> you know, being able to do lots of things instead of one thing. I, I think you touched on a fundamental intricacy of what makes us attracted to this industry. I, I, especially in this isolation period, I am missing that feeling, you know, the, the feeling of those truck doors closing and going like, well, that is complete. What's next? Yep. Aside from all the camaraderie and the goofing around yeah. and the technician. Yeah. I mean, a lot of it is just, you know, being able to move on. <laughs> you know, there's the excitement <laughs> of starting something new, the excitement of putting something away. <laughs> they both, you know, they're both very uh, appealing. Yeah, to be able to just, you know, clap your hands together, know that that's done, moving on to the next thing, and to get applause at the end of the project, and you're like, "Well, that was, that was a success. That's something." I'll, that s- we... I'll settle for a handshake. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is part of the, the part of what makes us attracted to this. That's man, I miss that a lot. It also kind of encourages us to continue to 
to fight for that that outcome no matter what in the fact that like i've i've worked 30 40 hours straight knowing that there's an end in sight uh, i know that I mean, we've done many of those shows together where it's just like well we just need to keep going there is no option yeah the, the, the show's gonna happen at seven o'clock tomorrow with all the lights or three of them you choose yeah. <laughs> how hard how hard do you want to work how hard can you work go and knowing that it's not going to be like i can work 40 hours i can work 50 hours straight but i can't do it for without an end in sight because then you're just exactly. being then you're just being exploited but yeah. if you know like okay let's get through this to the end point then I know that there's a relaxation or at least a, a closure at the end. So what is the what is the most exotic place that you've done a show? Probably Shanghai. We did the Special Olympics there. Yeah, uh, that, that was, was, that good. was a good couple of months. You know, I've, let's see, I did the uh, Olympic ceremonies in Athens too. That was pretty uh, exotic. Everything else uh, has been pretty much on the uh, on the Americas, American continents. I haven't really drifted outside there as much as a lot of uh, the other uh, crew chiefing guys. Most of my shows were pretty much television based, but uh, yeah, Athens was Athens was really great. Um, you got to run around and on the occasional day off, day off, we you get off work at seven o'clock in the morning, go right mm-hmm. to the nearest port, get on a boat, take that boat to the nearest island, sit and rent a scooter, or ride around and sit at the beach and drink until the ferry had to bring you back, and you'd go back and take a shower and go back to work. <laughs> That was a that was a pretty good couple of months of goofing around. In between all the all the uh, working outside in the uh, hundred degree temperature. See, those are the things that I just kind of kind of taken for granted that like that is part of the lifestyle of being in entertainment. And then once you and I get accustomed to stuff like that, we start to realize that a lot of people out of our industry will never understand that lifestyle. Yeah, a lot of uh. That's sort of how you remember the gigs. The the good gigs you remember by what you did when you weren't at work. The bad gigs you remember by what you did at work. So you'll say, "Oh, how was that?" Oh, that was great. We went to the beach. We we went. We went. You know, we ran around. We rode scooters. You know, sure there was you know thousands of hours of brutal, sweaty work. You know, but you know. I mean, like on that gig, we had a magenta problem with the Mac 2K washes. We literally swapped <laughs> 300 Mac 2K washes because magenta flags would break. They had a bad batch and they weren't polished correctly. So you'd, you'd yep. put a set in, you'd open the open it up and close it, and the flag would break. Yep. So we were literally swapping, you know, 20, 30 lights a day. And it's, it's that kind of work you have to just buckle up and and just do. You know, we 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 redid our schedule to accommodate those failures. We'd have a day crew and a night crew. So they pro, the guys would program at night, leave us a list of broken lights. The guys would come in in the morning, swap all the lights, fix them all. We come at night, you know, break thirty more. <laughs> so, yeah, there's there's part of the lifestyle is good, but part of it is a uh, just tough. It's just you know, yeah. The, the, I the totally work is work, remember. So. <laughs> I remember the betting pool for the Mac 2Ks and I remember that being a terrible experience and that's still not the most memorable from that show because it was of everything else that was wonderful about it. Exactly. I mean, you know, we, we got the, you know, we got to run the hundred yard dash to, you know, 
with you know when we had uh, the fat Olympic hundred yard dash, <laughs> the programmer would, would throw the entire stadium while while we'd all do hundred yard dashes down the Olympic you know down the Olympic <laughs> you know course. You know how awesome is that? I mean, those are the things you remember, not the you know the fact that the magenta flags broke or that you had to swap every lens and every twenty four fifteen you know twice. You know? Yeah, yeah, you remember the good stuff. I think I probably shows, remember the, the pocket tanks more than anything else. Oh, we paid so many pocket tanks. So <laughs> much pocket tanks. <laughs> and uh, uh, Smoothie Fridays. Yep. 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 At the uh, at the cafe, yeah. not too far, not around, not no, too no, far that, that was favorite. I remember favorite and I would go to the fruit. We make smoothies in the tech area. Yep. Yeah. Yep. That was the good times. Those are those were <laughs> what you remember for sure. Does that sort of, does the industry still suit your lifestyle now that you're a dad? Uh, it's definitely different. It's different. It's definitely isn't different. It? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You're, you're, you're definitely a, half your mind is, is back at home. I, mean, I, I have the luxury, you know, you know, I'm a TV guy, so I don't travel as much as a lot of the other guys. You know, I go to Vegas and Nashville. I'll, I'll leave town two or three times a year, maybe four times a year for a few weeks at a time. A lot of the corporate and touring guys were gone, you know, seemingly is more than their home. And that's gotta be really tough. Mm -hmm. I have the luxury of coming home, you know, more often than I don't. Right. Usually I get home at, you know, midnight and leave at, you know, 6 a.m. So I don't see a lot of them. But uh, yeah, you definitely have to spread your energy out a lot differently than you used to. You you got, you you can't leave it all at work. You gotta, you gotta come home and have some left in the tank. Yeah. My priority, my priorities have changed a little bit since I become a father the hundred hour weeks used to really get me going. And that used to be a, a badge of honor. And nowadays I don't see them quite the same anymore. Yeah. I've really, you know, I've got to regulate myself a lot too. I mean, you know, usually the, the last two days before a big show is when you're staying late doing all the programming sessions. And after the show, you stay late and you load out and you have a couple of really tough loadout days. And during those three or four days, you know, if you don't take care of yourself, you know, I just get drained. I mean, all the dopamine, all the happiness just doesn't replenish as fast as it used to back in my partying days, getting an eight hours sleep and taking a nap and a burrito doesn't, I don't bounce back as fast. And I really, you know, I've, I've had to learn just for my sanities and my family's sanity. So I don't come home like a total asshole after working Mm -hmm. so much. You know, I really need to take better care of myself. I used to be able to, you know, come home and just sleep for three days and recover. I can't do that now. I got to come home the next day, you know, dad's on, you know, I I can't be, I can't, I can't, I can't afford to have two days of, you know, dopamine replenishment, (laughs) you know, of, of, you know, chemically, you know, forced anger and depression. (laughs) You know, I've got (laughs) to, you got to be there. And so it's, it's forced me to really, a lot of times, like, you know, when we do late night programming sessions, I like to be there. Like be the guy that knows when the rig breaks and what's coming up next. I've had to start really, you know, handing a lot of that off, you know, to a lot of my crew guys, you know, it means I'm not getting as much overtime. It means, you know, you know, which it's, it's literally, it's my sanity is costing me money, but it's better for everyone in the long run. Yeah. That's a tough one. One of the toughest ones for me was to kind of realize that when you go, out of town for work, you can fall back into that schedule. And then when you're doing shows in your hometown and you have to come back at home that night, you have to work yourself back out of that schedule. Yeah. It's one thing when, you know, when you're crawling to your hotel room, get on the elevator and you're in the arena 
or, you know, right. take a five minute, you know, van ride to the arena. But when you have got to, you know, drive for an hour and a half, both ways, an eight hour turnaround means you get three hours of sleep, <laughs> you know? Right. So a lot of that, you know, you've really got to manage that. You know, it's, it's really easy to, a lot of times you don't realize you're behind until you're behind. You know, it, it's, it's yeah. such a, t- such a tough thing to be like, Oh, I'm going to be a mess in three days. Let's plan for that. <laughs> you know, I really, I, I really have to do that now, but okay. You, 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 you pour everything into the show those last few days to get it ready. You know, you've really got to start. You got, I've had to learn. You know, it's taken me literally a couple of years to learn to recognize what's coming. Okay. Yes. I want to do this project. I want to dedicate this much energy to it. But if I do that, I'm not going to be a healthy or happy on the other side of it. Mm-hmm. So you just need to just spread it around, you know, give, give, you know, give the reins up for a couple of nights, go back and get some sleep. It's better for everyone. Yeah. I, I think that comes with experience. Maybe it comes with age, a little bit of wisdom, both. a little bit of both. You don't, you know, you, just, you don't bounce back as hard and the responsibilities are greater. You got to take all that into consideration. That's something that guys like you and I had, we had to learn it the hard way. That's not something that we could, you can't tell me, even if I were to go back and tell 25 year old Chris, this sort of information, he wouldn't listen to me. He would be like, you're, you're old. You can't hang, you can't <laughs> hang the way I can. Yeah. Uh, we are almost out of time, but one of the things I, I wanted to ask you about is the evolution of Dimmer Beach monthly. Oh boy. How did that become a thing? And, uh, and what was the, what was the spark that, uh, that ignited it, that it, one? It literally started as a joke, totally a joke. <laughs> I was, uh, I think it was a survivor finale or it was something I was doing at a, the CBS, uh, television city studios here in Los Angeles. And it was back to these, uh, amazing super cables we, we talked about earlier. So right. back then we had to have, you had to run a separate home run data cable from every repeater. So I had a big waterfall of data cables and I made a nice little swirly fingerprint style loop on top of my racks and it was all nice and flat and, you know, pretty and artsy taped really nicely and i turned around and tripped over a big pile of soccer packs that had just been run like a spaghetti factory next to me and i was like hey guys if you want to be in the cover of jimmer beach monthly you got to do it nicer than this total offhanded comment so they just you know just made it up so they like fixed it all and made it all nice and flat and suddenly guys started sending me pictures like hey how's this do we do we make jimmer beach monthly so like i'm gonna start a web page so i just made a facebook page and uh started posting pictures of you know, cable runs and rack lands, good and bad. And people start paying attention. And, uh, you know, there's a, there's a pretty, mm-hmm. you know, our community is, you know, pretty involved and pretty tight knit. And there's, you said there, there's lots of different aspects, you know, there's the theater and concerts and TV. There, there's huge communities in each of those little, little areas. And they can all relate to the website. Cause it's really about, you know, pride in your work. You know, do, you know, spend the extra effort, do it nicely, show it off. You know, it, it's evolved into a, or devolved, depending on how you look at it, into a, yeah. a bunch of, uh, you know, just jokes and, you know, artsy things. But it's, you know, it kind of started off as, you know, taking pride in your work, in your workmanship, you know, and everyone can appreciate that. Yeah. The, in the, the very humble beginnings, it basically was cable run porn. Basically, yeah. it was like, wow. Look at that. I mean, hundreds of yards of perfectly laid four aught and two aught. And yeah, it was wonderful. Cable, cable carry off, you know, 200 socos running down to, you know, 
80 feet of racks. Yeah, it's, it's to show people some of the scale of what we do, big or small. And, you know, even if it's big, doesn't mean, you know, you can't, you know, take some pride and make it nice. You know, take five minutes longer to put it in. It'll take you a half hour less to take it out. I remember when, what show was it? I don't know if it was a Coachella or something, but I remember you getting the notice that you had 500 followers. And now that seems like nothing compared to what it is now. Yeah. Now it's like 13,000 something. Yeah. It's right on. It's actually something I have to pay attention to now. That's cool. That's a good feeling. It's just, it's just a number that's up there now. Yeah. Again, it's not something I'm trying to make money. It's just a, it's just a labor of love. It's just silly. It's something fun. I thought about, you know, doing, you know, product reviews and demos and things, but it hasn't really grown into that yet. We'll see. There's still time. Yeah. There's a place for that. There's a time and a place. Yeah. Cool, man. It's always a pleasure to catch up. I'm glad to see that you're doing quite well. I know that uh, this time is the toughest for us. You know, these are the times that we're just hanging out on the loading dock, having some some post show drinks or some uh, watching yeah, the, the doors close. Those are the moments that we're missing these days. Yeah, I haven't seen the loading dock in a few months. That's for sure. Ho- hopefully, uh, next couple months we'll start doing some things again. Yeah, start uh, jabbing people with some some needles, and we'll get back to work sooner than later. Yeah, some of the TV shows are keeping back because they're able to, you know, do things without an audience. So that's the least, you know, right. a step in the right direction. Hopefully we can get some of the, the crowd back in there real soon. Thank you so much, Trowbridge. I appreciate it. Thanks, Chris. Enjoyed it. <laughs> <laughs>